one-yard touchdown, running in the first place for number one. Harris drops back, fades to the left, pressure on, and he goes down. Ja'Garrett Davis gets home, and the all-black sideline explodes here in Hamilton. Toward the five, it went through Marcus Dale's hands, and Kyron Moore, the presence of mind to catch it and step out of bounds at the five with 20 seconds to go. Pressure loads it up, goes down the field, taking a shot into the end zone. He caught it. Touchdown, Tigertown. Brandon Banks, how did he do it? It is the breakdown. Welcome to Canadian Football Perspective on a Wednesday. Thank you, as always, for being here with us. And thank you, as always, to our friends at Fox 40, helping you return to play safely with their latest innovations. The Fox 40 Tri-Layer Whistle Mask and the Fox 40 Electronic Whistle. For 15% off all your whistle needs, visit fox40shop.com and enter the code CFP15. As always, I welcome in Derek Taylor at DT on SC out there in Regina. Another beautiful sunny day in the province of Saskatchewan. Derek, what did we get today? It was till about three o'clock. It was 31 degrees and then all hell broke loose and thunderstorms. <laughs> and it's going to be five and snowing by Friday. So You guys sound kind of like Maybe. Hamilton with the uh, the heat, the humidity this time of year, the snapping, the thunderstorms. We've been so boring in Hamilton. It's been basically 10 and then 12 the next day and then 13 the next and then 15 and then down to 12 and then I, whoa up to 20 25 23 23 23 23 23 23 it's like we have actually done the spring thing in the gradual boring way where hamilton is usually pretty volatile like that yeah for for a guy who like me who spent the entire weekend adjusting the in-ground sprinklers in his house oh. i thought that they might freeze again on the weekend Ooh. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me let my people go. Let my watering the lawn people go. Uh, well, let's uh, let's relax and uh, sink into some CFL fun for you here as we continue to get updates on season availability, fans in the stands, all the rest. Uh, and of course, we want to remind you that Sawdust City Brewing makes this show possible for you, offering brewery fresh beer delivered directly to your door. You can visit their website, sawdustcitybeer.com and shop their wide variety of brews. Uh, we are completing the fourth of four Logger Series tastings coming up this Friday for you on our YouTube page. So make sure you're checking that out. And of course, you can get this podcast, as always, on our YouTube page as well. Uh, this May, CFP listeners are getting an exclusive promo code UCFP during checkout to receive free shipping on all orders over $100 in Ontario. Only must be of legal drinking age. Uh, I want to begin today with uh, a fun little interaction that you and I had on on Twitter earlier today as we're recording this on Tuesday evening uh, after you were all done the sports cage where I, I, I've gotten into this habit of when I'm pretending to be strong in my garage of putting on a CFL game of the past. <laughs> and, uh, and I usually put on something that I either want to jog my memory or something that I want to kind of fuel some creative juices on something that, you know, I'm, I'm writing an article on somebody or whatever it might be. And I just throw yeah. it on so that I can, when I'm doing my workout, I'll glance over at the TV and once in a while, I'll just see something that will make me go, whoa, and it'll hopefully turn into something that we can use for content and whatnot. So, uh, plus I just like watching football. So, uh, I, I put on the 2018, uh, or sorry, the 2019 East final, which was the Ticats blackout against Trevor Harris and, uh, the then Edmonton Eskimos. And I yeah, saw 18, 2018. Was it 20? Yeah. What am I thinking? No. So I put on. 19 was the Edmonton crossover. Uh, yeah. So that's what I put on though. was Edmonton Hamilton. 
uh, with Trevor in Edmonton. Oh, and then, but yeah, yeah, but what it was that caught me off and why you thought that it was 2018 is that I tweeted out saying, man, I forgot what Trevor Harris did in the 2018 East final when Hamilton was playing Ottawa and he was still with the Red Blacks. And the reason that I was shook by this is that when I remember great Trevor Harris playoff performances, I just think East semifinal against Montreal that we always talk about from 2019. But then you realize what he didn't. And I was there in person for both of them. One of them, the 2018 East final Hamilton against Ottawa. I called on radio for Hamilton. And the other, I was <laughs> at the start of the game. I was on the sidelines and then Montreal thought I was stealing signals. And so they sent me up to the press box uh, and I decided I don't like watching games in the press box. So I grabbed a hot dog and a beer and I sat in the stands by myself. Uh, at Percival Molson as I was <laughs> as I was watching the game so but I was there for both of them in person and for some reason maybe it's the recency bias maybe it's something else but 2019 was so fresh in my memory DT and 2018 when they put it up on the broadcast for 2019 of hey Trevor was 36 of 39 I think it was for six touchdowns no interceptions I completely, for some reason, had forgotten about that. And then you followed it up with a tweet to me about yards after catch that blew my mind even more than his actual game stats. Well, yeah, because he had six touchdowns in that game. And then I, I wrote a piece, uh, a detail segment for the for the following week, just about Trevor Harris. And of those six touchdowns, when I watched them, I thought, this seems like a lot of work being done by uh, the running backs and by the guys catching it. I think Galanders had one in there. Ellingson had one. Uh, And as I went back and looked, 85% of the yards on those touchdowns came after the catch. So he had a 22-yard touchdown pass, but he threw it six yards behind the line of scrimmage. And you go, okay, I I love Trevor Harris, and I want to pick on him, but there's a lot of work being done by when you get a 50-yard touchdown and 40 yak yards from Greg Ellingson, you're getting a lot of favors from your best friends on that one. I just thought, and it was no, it's no slam on Harris because everybody gets that. It was just funny that, that they, those six touchdown performance was so heavily concentrated on guys making plays after Harris got them the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny when you first sent me the tweet, because I thought that it was you saying, well, all of his passing yards, 85% of them came from Yak. I'm like, that seems crazy. I don't remember that happening. And then I realized, oh, you were just talking touchdowns. And it was equally crazy. Like I have from my sheet here, the average uh, air yards that he had per attempt on the six touchdown passes was nine yards in the air. Uh, The average, average yards after catch on those six touchdown passes, 16.5. So yeah, I mean, it was like, there was this huge disparity, but I just, I wanted to bring that up off the top here because I found that to be such a weird, funny, interesting stat of just the way that he has operated. And it honestly has given me an idea for, an article here just comparing and contrasting those two great performances and saying 18, 19, we missed 20. What's that dude got in store for us in 2021? Because I got a couple of tweets from people when I sent that out saying Trevor Harris could be in the run for an MOP discussion if he plays his cards right. And if Elizondo gives him all of the access he needs, but again, it's, I love looking at the West division that you guys have out there in the prairies and beyond, because it's like, well, I can make a case for Mike Riley right now. I can make a case for Fajardo. Oh, yeah. I can make a case for Bo. I can make a, you can make a case for absolutely anybody that plays the most important position on the field in the West, because there's so many good talented teams with good, smart coaching staffs right now. Oh yeah. I mean, Edmonton had some major up- upgrades. BC over two off seasons has done great things. Uh, everybody in Saskatchewan is super excited to see what Fajardo is in, in year number two. It's, 
<laughs> there's a lot of intrigue. Just get us to the start line so we can yeah. see this all play out. And well, then hopefully, but... I was going to say different than 19, where every quarterback got injured. Let's not have any of that. Let's have all the starters make it through. Yeah, no doubt. I uh, I will say good news that we got from Montreal, from Quebec, uh, uh, just before we started taping here, which was that they are open to having fans in the Bell Centre for Montreal Canadiens hockey games, 2,500, I believe they said, which again cracks open the door yeah. and allows the Alouettes to release a statement saying that they're looking forward to the progress of lifting of restrictions and all of the rest. So yeah, it's, there's a little bit of forward momentum there, but at the same time, it's like you see a headline that comes from Rash Madani early in the day that says, Hey, people have the schedule from your show and uh, they don't know what to do with it because they don't have any confidence. And then you see Bob Young, five minutes later, a statement comes out saying we will unquestionably play in 2021. I'm like, I've stopped guessing. I just like, whatever, man, <laughs> yeah. when, when we get there, we get there. Fingers crossed. We get there. We better get there. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I can't ride the roller coaster wave of emotions anymore where every single day feels like there's a new headline, sometimes contradictory headline that's coming out on all of this. But uh, the, yeah. Trevor, the Trevor Harris stuff is an interesting segue into a project I was working on this week that I wanted to actually discuss with you, which is uh, going back through and watching those old Grey Cups. And after the draft has wrapped up here, I've had a little bit of free time and I've always wanted to do this. Uh, go back and watch Russ Jackson's Great Cups because I love Russ. He lives relatively close to me. I've seen him a bunch of times at Ticats Games as a season ticket holder. It's funny, when I interviewed him in 2020, he just wanted to ask me questions about the Ticats because he's a season ticket holder. It wasn't the history of the game or Ottawa or Frank Clare or any of that stuff. It was just, what do you think they're going to do at quarterback? <laughs> like he's just uh, like any other fan, which I think is absolutely amazing. But uh, I went back through and I've watched uh, 60 66 and 68 three of his four gray cups i'm working my way through 69 as we stand right now the full article breakdown all the rest will be available on cfl.ca coming up later on this week i think thursday or friday that'll be out and it'll also go on cfperspective.com but uh, i i've had a lot of fun going through these primarily because and russ's journey i think is as unique as any uh, his career, I feel like I, I appreciate and I know enough about from actually interviewing him about the smaller stages in it. But when he comes in, he's wearing number 82 and he's basically an option quarterback out of McMaster. And then he ends up in 1960 being in a quarterback battle with Ron Lancaster, where he told me Frank Clare wouldn't tell us who was starting the game, who was starting the half, who was going in the next drive. He would just walk down the bench before every drive and go, hey, Ronnie, you, Russ, yeah, you. And it, and it flipped and flopped in 1960, even in the Grey Cup, DT. It just, it was like KG and Brandon Bridge for the Riders when they were playing in the 2017 East Final against Toronto. Like, it yeah. was it was wild to see the quarterbacks used that way. But the real reason I love this is that in 1960, you have this pairing of the two of them, and they have to make a decision on who gets to stay and, and who moves on. They decide Ron Lancaster is going to go on. He goes on to Saskatchewan. Russ stays in Ottawa. They both have wonderful careers but in 1966 it's so underrated to me people should go back and watch it's on the great cup portal right now on cfl.ca you have such a good really game but primarily first half between the 66 riders and the 66 rough riders if you want a game uh to watch and i understand that's contradictory because they're both rough riders but uh, it's funny because they do, at various points in the broadcast, they call them the Prairie Riders and the East Riders. And I was like, <laughs> nice. that, that, that's so good. But, uh, but yeah, well, watching that first half, it, they are just like, <laughs> Ron throws deep, 
scores a big touchdown. Russ comes back first play of the next drive. He throws it 50 yards. They score a touchdown. And you got to realize this is three, four, five years removed from Edmonton running the ball on 80% of plays. So watching Ron Lancaster and Russ Jackson throw it all over the field was so much fun to go back and appreciate. And then in, in 68, you get Peter Lisk at quarterback for Calgary, throws for 400 yards, loses to Russ, who throws for less than 200. And I mean, the number of, of pass, I believe it was 21 of 36 or something like that. I mean, it was a lot of attempts for the time for Calgary's Peter Lisk in 68, but he completed less passes of 20 yards or more than Russ did. And Russ was like eight of 15. Like he barely even threw the ball, but he connected on more deep shots. So I knew from talking to Russ, the deep ball was important to him, but I didn't realize how important and how much it meant to them in those Grey Cup games. And the yards in air that we mentioned there for Trevor Harris, averaging nine in the 2018 East final for Ottawa against Hamilton. I couldn't believe this. Through the three great cups that I've watched, uh, the average yards in air per attempt, Russ Jackson, great cups, 19.2. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Come on. And and there was a time where I just, as I'm tracking it, I'm like, man, Russ only throws deep. And it was really funny (laughs) because I kind of started to realize, and I checked at one point in like the third quarter of 1968 as I was watching it, the average was like 22.5 and then they get the lead and he starts throwing some like checkdowns and crossers and little dump offs yeah. and screens and uh, which really manipulated the number. But like as a, as a true average before the game situation prevailed and changed his decision-making Russ Jackson was averaging 20 plus yards per attempt in the 1960s. That's that is crazy for, for context. Uh, Vernon Adams was the deepest passer in 2019 10.9 yards downfield. Per yeah. Time. Yeah. Like, like so it's, it's like more 20. than double. And I understand that it's not over a full season and all the rest, but it's more than yeah. double and it's in great cups. Like that's the thing that jumps out to me yeah. too, is what I'm really looking forward to is once I have these four great cups completed and I'll put this in the article, I'm going to compare it to the four great cups that I have from like Bernie Filoni or the three great cups I, I have from, uh, from Sam Echeverry from 54, 5, and 6. And I'm going to look at, uh, you know, what I have for information on Bo Levi Mitchell. Because obviously I don't have a full profile yet because I'm making my way chronologically through the history of the game. But, uh, but hey, it's really nice to almost be done the black and white games. I'll tell you that much. Uh, my eyes, there you go. not so great, so great uh, as I work my way through that. But yeah, it, just his approach in that time was incredible to me. And I actually, I'm going to look up here as we're chatting where Ron Lancaster matched on this because it's 66. Like I say, it's just, it, it blows your eyebrows off how they're both just gunning back and forth up and down the field for a time that's not supposed to be like that. Yeah. I, I just had to pull up again, more of the numbers from 2019. The, the single deepest passing game was Zach Kalaros in the West final against the Riders. 15 and a half yards downfield wow. only four only four times did a guy break 15 you're talking 22 who who blew this oh uh okay so yeah uh i don't want to say i'll retract my who blew this one matt nichols had the shortest passing game in 2019 <laughs> i say unsurprised his average pass was 4.2 yards downfield what game was that uh that was the loss to toronto was that the big comeback oh wow toronto? That probably was the early season, yeah. <laughs> 28-27 comeback loss to Toronto. Oh, yeah. my gosh. 
That's amazing. Uh, so Ron Lancaster, 1966 Grey Cup, 18.95 yards in air. Like that's what I'm saying is if you read through the attempts here, and I'll, I'll do this sort of chronologically for you quick so you can get a sense for just how crazy the start of the game is. How, and I love it, right? Because I don't know if this was something that played into the narrative going in or whatnot, right? Because it's not like we have the week of buildup and all the press clippings to understand this stuff. I'm sure a lot of it exists out there, but I didn't read into it was – I yeah. wonder how much of it was Russ versus Ron, because can you imagine, man, like having those two guys that played together in the rivalry? It's I'm trying to think of like a relative comparison between like maybe like a Trevor Harris against Zach Kalaros if they were two guys from the Argos way back when, and it was like, well, somebody's got to go somewhere else, or you're both backing up the legend in Ricky Ray, so you've got to. There's, I mean, Edmonton, you mentioned on the sports cage today when you had Tracy Ham and, 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 it's like, I mean, yeah. you, you put that many talented people in a room and they have to split and go elsewhere to find their keeps, then you're, but it's rare, right? It's difficult to, to be able to have that, but yards in air uh, chronologically here, uh, the first pass was five yards behind the line of scrimmage. Then Ron Lancaster came out and went 38, 35, 14, 21, 12, 24, 21, 29, 5. 31 and 20 that was the first half yeah so in the first half here and again i know we're diving deep on the numbers to start off but he averaged 20.4 yards in air in the first half of a great cup game in 1966 it's again it's yeah. just it's amazing to watch it i i think people should go back and appreciate that game in that first half well and when people talk about how the game has changed and the past game became more of a thing and 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 running's less of a factor the the short intermediate pass game like trevor harris the guy who who lives and dies with that short intermediate pass game yeah and the occasional deep shot ricky ray before him right was just oh okay boop oop boop oop boop boop and then uh you know 12 percent of the time he'd take a shot downfield you know yeah. oh, it's the short and intermediate thing it sounds like ronnie was always ready to go yeah. uh ready to go but it, they would use presumably the run game instead of 12 yards across the middle that kind of that kind of pass. Plus, uh, just from this, because why I always enjoy talking to you, Marshall, I learned that Frank Clare was a terrible football coach. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. No, it's your turn at quarterback. I, I, Fainer. I um, wish I had the clip pulled up here. I should have I should have isolated it before. You know, what? I'll find it and I'll put it in in post of Russ talking about who was going to go in and how they knew he was going to go in. I want to go to that 1960 uh, Grey Cup because something that I think a lot of people – are not familiar with if they just know the history of you know Ron Lancaster, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders quarterback, and Russ Jackson with the Ottawa Rough Riders. Um, you guys in 1960, the old dual quarterback uh, system. You are somebody who is a season ticket holder of the Tiger Cats now, and you've seen you know quarterbacks come in through all of your years through a variety of different teams where it's this guy's in for a couple plays and that guy gets a couple drives. You get the first two drives in 1960, and Ron Lancaster comes in for the third, and then basically he gets a couple of drives and you come back into the game. That two-quarterback system, um, how did that work for you? And then I'll ask you a follow-up on the way that it works in, in modern times now. But how did that work for you that first year? Because that's a, a really tough spot to get into a rhythm as a quarterback, I usually felt like. Well, I think you're right. And you playing quarterback know that. But I, th I think at the time, both of us were so young and learning the game. Like, you don't learn the game in one year or anything. And we were learning the game. And... The two-quarterback system in 1960 worked mm. like that. That worked. And, and I think we both sort of accepted it. If one of us hadn't accepted it, I think it might not have worked. But we knew. And there were some games that 
we would be on the sideline after the pregame warm-up, and I'd walk over to Ronnie and say, are you starting? <laughs> He'd say, I don't know, are you? I said, I don't know. And we would know till the... Ottawa football team got possession of the ball, and he'd come over and he'd say to Ronnie or myself, okay, you're in there, okay? <laughs> like, and that's the worst thing that can happen, as we found out as we grew as quarterbacks. you got to prepare for yeah. the position and prepare for what you think you're going to do early in the football game to help you later in the football game. So it, it worked. We both were young. We both were aggressive. But the best thing that happened, as our careers indicate, um, was that Frank finally decided it wasn't working uh, for many reasons. The, the coaches were split as to who should play. The fans certainly were split as to who should play. And it wasn't good for us developing our skills to continue that way. And by making the decision to trade Ron to Saskatchewan, yeah. where he had a great career and I stayed in Ottawa, worked out for both of us because I don't think either of us would have had either as long a career or as great a career if he'd kept us both and and kept this sort of um, difference between the fans and the coaching staff and so on going. But the the funny things were that um, we were just prepared all the time to go in. You never knew when he was going to walk up and you might... Ronnie might lead a touchdown drive, and then he'd come to, up to me when we got the ball next time and say, you're in. You know, there was no rhyme or reason in the changing of the quarterback back in those days. We just both played, and uh, we, we had some success, but uh, early in the 60s, things started to get a little dicey. Yeah. Uh, could Russ Jackson have had the same success in your career as a Saskatchewan Rough Rider? Let's say that Frank Clare says, you know what, I, th I think we're going to trade Russ out west. I don't know. I, I, and I've never really, I don't I don't know. It's hard to say. Hey, you, you, you might have, you might not have. They had great football teams and so on, and, and Ronnie had a great career. But, but I, I never did ask Frank. I mean, Frank and I, I was like a son to him. I mean, he just trusted me to take over things and do things. And I never did sit down with Frank and say, why did you trade Ron and not me? Hmm. There were rumors at the time. Um, I always threw a, a fairly hard pass. And Ronnie threw a, a lighter pass. Um, some of the receivers liked it better to be easier to catch. <laughs> but Yours were more fun to watch. I can attest yeah, to being yeah, able to go I, through these I games. I know that... Uh, you know, Ronnie had more interceptions than I did as okay. a rough rider. And maybe it was the offense we were running didn't quite suit him. I don't know. But whether that had anything to do with Frank, because Frank hate, Frank Clare hated turnovers. He hated them. And whether that was any of the reason or whether he just felt I was going to fit better into the system he was developing in Ottawa, I don't know. But uh, I, I never ever ask Frank, like, why did you keep me? Did you ever wish that you would have sat down with him and just for your own knowledge or context said, hey, what was the decision there? I think you always wish when someone passes on that you'd had other conversations with them. Yeah, Russ was always just so confused by it, but he also, he had some amazing uh, stories to tell about Frank Clare where he said he was like a father figure to him in the sense that he, he trusted him and he allowed him to make mistakes and he, you know, he allowed Russ to call the plays uh, a lot of the time as well and didn't override what he wanted to do. And 
Uh, he just said that there was this sense of freedom and there was this sense of trust. And he was basically making the comparison to today where he's like, that, that doesn't exist a lot of like, you're just, you are, you're a pawn out there that's being told what to do a lot of the time. And there are guys who can get away from the robotic nature of, of offense and progressions and things of that nature and be off schedule and make great plays. We saw Kalaros do that a lot, of course, in the 2019 Grey Cup run. But uh, when I, I see the way that Russ's eyes lit up and how he felt about that opportunity to control his own destiny. Uh, yeah, Frank Lair, I think, was was as much a mentor as he was just a, kind of an ear for Russ to be yeah. able to kind of like soundboard things and then make his own decisions. Man, those two quarterbacks on the, on the same team, and you mentioned 87, where Tracy Ham, Hall of Famer, was third string yes. behind Hall of Famer Damon Allen behind Hall of Famer Matt Dunnigan. You go, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder what current roster of quarterbacks in, in the year 2021 includes three Hall of Famers. So uh, I, just trying to I think, who's behind Harker, uh, behind Fajardo there? Uh, unknown. Uh, Joe Flacco's <laughs> brother. Hey, uh, there you go. Yeah. I, I mean, the closest might be, right, Ricky Ray, Trevor Harris, Zach Caleros. However, those two fell in behind him at the time. That might be the the modern day closest we get because that's a hall of famer and two legit top end CFL starters. But wow. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Those two played on the same team in the sixties, which wow. leads me perfectly into something we threw out on Twitter at CF perspective, which was Twitter trivia Tuesday. And I ask you, Derek Taylor off the top of your head, okay. uh, this is a difficult question, but I thought it was a fun one. Cause I was just sorting through some great cup statistics as I was going through some of this history stuff. And I stumbled into wondering, I wonder who had the longest period of time, greatest amount of years, between their first and last Grey Cup appearances as a quarterback in CFL history. So obviously, it's a minimum of two Grey Cups played because mm-hmm. you need to have a first and a last. Uh, so sorry, Mike Riley, you are eliminated from the running here because 2015 was the, uh, the only main show for Mike. Uh, but... You have a first and a last, and it's the years in between. How many years in between? Uh, and I will not give you the number right now as a hint, but think about this for a second. Let me know if you need any hints. Uh, Ricky went, what, 14 years between Grey Cups? So, Rick, yeah, Ricky Ray is uh, third on this list. It is 15 years in between. I know, it's crazy. So, he went 02 to 17. So Ricky Ray was 02 to 17. Right. Um, good. Uh, I, I don't is, is it Ronnie? I, I gosh. Ron I Lancaster is second on the list. You're making your way hotter and hotter here as you go up. So Ron Lancaster was 1960 with Ottawa uh, in a game in which he was one for four. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he, I mean, he had two yards. So shout out to that. Uh, but he, <laughs> uh, But he was one of four in that gray cup in 1960. And I, I just can't believe like the longevity here of Lancaster playing in 1960 and then 1976 is his last. So like that's insane because in between there, of course he goes 1960, 66, 67, 69, 72 and 76. Like that's just, that's an unbelievable run, but he's number two, just ahead of Ricky Ray. There is only one person who has played in a great cup further apart as a quarterback in CFL history. I don't know. 
Damon. I wanted to make a a Bob Cameron joke, but I. (laughs) Uh, Damon Allen is the answer. Oh, yeah, duh. We had somebody send it in. No, but it's you don't have to feel dumb on that one because the time span is crazy 86 to 04. Like 1986 with Edmonton to 2004 in Toronto. And of course, in between there, he goes 86, 87, 93, and then 2000 with BC, and then 2004 with Toronto. But the idea of those three guys not only being, of course, amongst the tops of all time quarterbacking history, but 15 years for Rookie Ray, 16 years for Ron Lancaster, 18 years uh, for Allen. After that, it's Bernie Filoni at 10 years. So there's this big drop off. Russ Jackson and Danny Mack at nine years between their Grey Cup appearances because Russ, of course, was 1960, 1969. And Russ could keep playing. I mean, I, I th- yeah. feel like if Ottawa would have, you know, really tried to get him to come back, maybe he would have. He was pretty set on it. But uh, nine years in between. And then there's a log jam for eight years between your first and your last Grey Cup appearance, which includes Kenny Plain, Sonny Wade, Tom Wilkinson, Henry Burris, Dave Dickinson, and Tom Clements. So all those guys, eight years in between. But again, like all those names that you think about, man, Henry had a long, healthy career. When you think about him being back and, and what he did in Calgary and then how he ends his career in Ottawa, like Russ Jackson, final game, Grey Cup, heroic victory, all the rest. And he goes eight years, and it's not even half of how long Damon Allen went. It is half of how long Ron Lancaster went. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Eight years, Damon was just getting warmed up. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's 14 years left in this. He was Tom Brady before Tom Brady. That's true. By the way, I saw a clip of Tom Brady from the Super Bowl uh, making a throw that blew my mind today. Also, I just saw a clip of it where he, against Kansas City, takes a snap, five-man pressure, Fournette whiffs, Werfs whiffs. Uh, he doesn't even slide away from the pressure, and he throws it to Godwin like 55 yards down the middle of the field <laughs> in the Super Bowl. And you see the end cut of it. You're like – how is an 80-year-old making that throw? That doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. But uh, let's get into uh, some of our other big thoughts from the day. Uh, we already talked a little bit about the article uh, that I wrote on quarterbacking battles. If you want to hear all that, go to the Sports Cage podcast and check it out because we went in-depth on QB battles and what I was looking at with some of the things that I talked about with Bo Levi Mitchell. But um, what did you take from any or all of the clips that I sent out of what Bo and I talked about? Because it was I always enjoy talking to Bo. He's always a fun conversation, but uh, yeah. he was really relaxed in the chat that we had here on CFP on Monday that's available for people in the podcast feed if you haven't heard it. Uh, but it was, um, I, I felt like it was a pretty raw version of Bo and it's he's just he's sitting around and thinking a lot about the fact that he's getting, I mean, we're talking about longevity in the CFL. He's, he's a veteran, like he's a longer in the tooth guy now. And it, it seems crazy to say that, but the dude has been in great cups, 2012, 14, uh, 16, 17, 18. Like he, he's starting to rack up similar longevity and statistics to what we've seen from some of the guys we talked about here off the top. Yeah. And I mean, we, we skipped, we skipped a year of football, so I don't, off the top of my head, is Bo still just 30? Like, did he just turn 30, 31 now? So yeah. he's a March 1990 guy. Like, that's – if if he recovers from his injury problems of 19, he's he's got a lot of, lot of, lot of path ahead of him, right? He's got a lot of years left. And, and the way he plays the game and doesn't take a lot of hits, and is, he's just so sharp in the pocket there and absolutely unflappable. The, the stuff about uh, learning to – what with Nick Arbuckle, right? Learning that yeah. okay, well, the the organization I think really thinks this guy is valuable, so I should probably get into to helping him. I tried to 
tried to kind of push that to the back. The the anti Brett Favre thing, right? Where yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to train nobody. Or it's just, no, you know what? It probably helps. The rising tide floats all boats, especially when your your arm isn't uh, isn't particularly good, and you want to hang in and be playoff worthy when the season uh, regular season wraps up. Yeah, and he didn't want to mention who he had talked to, but I thought the important point in that quote was when he said I had talked to somebody else to be like, hey, how's it working with this guy? And he said, oh, shit, he won't even talk to you if you're a rookie. If you have any chance of taking his job down the line, like that guy won't barely even look at you. And he was like, I don't want to mention names. And immediately I'm like, we only got nine teams. (laughs) Like, like, can we figure out who that was? I'm trying to think, who would Bo talk to and who would he feel like worthy of reaching out to and asking them, Hey, what's it like working with blank? And he mentioned hall of famer. And I was like, well, it, it couldn't be Ricky, right? Like it right. couldn't have been Zach because Ricky's not that guy from everything that I've seen or heard. Yeah. You started to exactly. think about since Bo has been in the league, like, is there any chance that it was Hank that wasn't easy to deal with? Was it, uh, you know, who are other hall of fame? Was it Calvillo? Could he have been that guy? Like at the end of his career was Bo was coming into the league. It's yeah. It left that door open for people to speculate on who was the quarterback who did the Favre thing, had no interest in cultivating the next generation of talent. Uh, but Bo took away that lesson, as you say, of just saying, I never want to be that guy. And the maturity that comes with, with recognizing that you have gone from, the student to the teacher and having the memory of when you were the student carrying it into becoming the teacher. I was, again, it's one of those things where when you add up that what Bo's done in his career, the accolades, the statistics, but then you factor in the longevity and the learning that he's gone through. I, uh, I was pretty amazed to hear him be so self-aware about where he's at in his career, even though like you say, it's only 31, nothing's guaranteed, but he's got a lot of time left to play but he's already played in more great cups than Dave Dickinson did in his CFL career. He's, I mean, Jeff Garcia played in one, Bo's been in five, you know what I mean? Like you start to, to look at what he has done and uh, the, the all encompassing awareness that he has. If I'm another CFL team, especially in the West, that's terrifying that he is (laughs) maturing and growing and physically still feels good. Well, and to a certain extent, it, it, I mean, a lot of that stuff would be about realizing the situation you're in and your own confidence, right? Like yeah. a teammate, everybody's fighting for tooth and nail to get every last spot. And there was the story of what was it? He went to Minnesota uh, before he signed his deal in 19. And he's like, I'm coming here to, to beat out Kirk Cousins. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't want anybody to beat up Kirk Cousins, who we paid a hundred zillion dollars, by the way, all guaranteed. So don't beat him out, <laughs> right? You know, I, I, I don't know. I just kind of look at it in my own job and go, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of I work with a lot of talented broadcasters in my job, and I have a I have a role that I think a lot of people would want to have. Mm-hmm. But the best thing for all of us is that I help them come along and I help them grow and. If one day uh, I'm a blabbering idiot and no, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore, someone takes my job, okay, if I held on to it for another year because I stepped on the necks of everybody around me, was that really worth it? Was that right. really, really worth it? And especially in a team atmosphere like this, the Stampeders absolutely needed Nick Arbuckle in 2019. I, they would have been, yeah, if, if whatever Bo did to help Nick, if Nick was not ready to take over, in 2019 when he did and keep them alive in that run, including just mashing the riders in Saskatchewan, Calgary would have been, I don't know, outside the playoffs looking, okay, 
it had been worse than BC's, which wasn't going to happen, yeah. but they would have been real trouble. They, they wouldn't have been hosting any West, West semifinal. Yeah, and the interesting aspect of, uh, of this dynamic, I think that you we've now learned about, because I've, I've talked to Nick about working with Bo as well, and he said the same thing. Like, it was almost like, you know, cross-examination uh, without having either of the witnesses in the room. And they both said the same thing. Like, I loved him. He was great for me. He answered all my questions. Bo was like, yeah, I talked to him. I didn't mind talking to him. I felt like it was really comfortable being able to communicate what we were trying to do with the offense so he could pick things up. And yeah, they did need him because, like I had heard good things about Montel Cozart's arm, but he, I mean, he has like two snaps taken in the short yardage. So they needed Nick yeah. to be good in that spot in 2019. And as you say, he was, and he was good enough to get himself interest from Ottawa and then get flipped to Toronto, obviously. But uh, with the way that the season is likely to shake out, regardless of whether we start in August, as we hope, or if it gets pushed to September, which seems more likely, I think, as I'm starting to look at things more and more, that if you end up having the teams from the East, especially Toronto being required to start a lot of their chunks of the season in the West, how juicy would it be for a week one Argos at stamps and have Nick Arbuckle and Ryan Dinwiddie against Dave Dickinson and Bo Levi Mitchell to kick off one of your games in the opening weekend. Cause you could have Hamilton at Winnipeg, Toronto, uh, at Calgary. And I'm trying to think who else we could have. We could have the Ottawa Edmonton bowl, uh, yeah. And then Montreal, who do we well, want Montreal, to get? Saskatchewan. Yeah. The, the two quarterback, the two first year starters from 2019 who people are like, oh, these guys are going to the moon. There you go. That's week and one. We just solved yeah. week one in the Canadian. Whenever week one is, that needs to be the four matchups right there. Put a stamp on it. Put it in the calendar. Because I think if you were to have like a Thursday night football Ticats Bombers to recap, uh, you know, relive the 2019 Great Cup. And then you go Friday night maybe double header where you know <laughs> i feel bad that bc's getting left out again like they always do on labor day weekend but uh but if you end up going with uh you know the later game uh or maybe you go with like a saturday afternoon double matinee i don't know it's just yeah wh whatever structure they want to do with it those four matches would be amazing to kick things off Want to take a second to recognize our new partners, Area 51 Sports Apparel. They have hooked us up with some beautiful hoodies and hats and polos for the summer. They're the newest player in the Canadian team sports uniform and equipment industry. Locally and minority-owned, Area 51 Sports' goal is to provide high-quality uniforms, apparel, and equipment at affordable prices. Area 51 Sports offers uniforms and equipment for all sports at remarkable prices. Check them out on Instagram at Area51, that's the numbers 51, at Area51 Sport, or reach out to them via email at Area51 Sports Apparel at gmail.com. Yeah, even if you took Ottawa to BC and had the Rick Campbell Bowl, right? There's yes. so many. Yeah, or, you know, play half against Edmonton, fly to Vancouver, play the second <laughs> half. Just whatever. We're going to do unconventional things. The commissioner says he is open to anything. <laughs> maybe we maybe just find somewhere. Half a game against them. Let's find somewhere that's like just over the continental divide, like somewhere right. just on the other side of the Rockies, but the difference we can just, you know, play a little round Robin, something like that. But um, anyway. yeah, it'll be a lot of fun to see those guys get into action against each other though, because I, I am interested in picking the brand of Ryan Dinwiddie before the season begins on exactly how he's crafting this and how much similarities there are to what he's going to run. Cause I've talked to him since he took the Toronto job and he said there, there's going to be a lot of stuff that looks similar to yeah. Calgary. We have the personnel we believe to be able to accomplish what we did in Calgary when we were scoring on offense and whatnot. But the difference here is that yes, Calgary's defense had Holly at linebacker and yes, they had 
still excellent national interior pass rush and they had good defensive back play when they had Trey Roberson, but uh, Toronto has spent so much free agency on defense and they've prioritized the front seven that I think if you get Calgary's bunny quotes, Calgary's offense through the form of Dinwiddie, Arbuckle, Eric Rogers, all the rest, and you end up getting what that defense could become in Toronto. I mean, there was a time DT, as you know, where Calgary just did not lose at home. And yeah. uh, especially against the East. Right. And especially I remember when Dominic Davis went in there to kick off whatever it was, 2018 or 2019. And it I threw all those picks and still won. It was like, none of that makes any sense. Uh, but he <laughs> ends up getting the victory. And it, to imagine Toronto going in with a new logo on the side of the helmets, the new old logo and going in with, I mean, let's be real. Toronto wanted Bo Levi in free agency. They couldn't get him. So they went and got Arbuckle a couple years later. Like yeah. if they, if they were to go and get, the the Arbuckle Dinwiddie connection go into Calgary and win in Week One. Whew, man, we would have some stories to talk about. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what kind of quarterback quarterback Arbuckle really is because the way I mean the way the numbers bear out how, what what Bo is and what Nick is yeah. Nick's a lot more similar numbers wise to Trevor Harris. Yep, right. Bo is the Bo is the gunslinging quarterback, ten point nine yards downfield. Uh, uh, Arbuckle was a little over eight yards downfield, which is very short. It's a, I mean, it's Trevor Harris territory. Uh, Bo, 50% more deep shots on a percentage basis. Uh, Arbuckle was less willing to do that in that Calgary offense. Still effective as can be, but do, doing it in different ways. So I, I'm curious to see if that was just a product of, okay, well, this offense is built for Bo. Nick, you just got to make it and we'll figure out what you like along the way. And now we get to build one for you. Uh, I don't know if Nick is that gunslinger that that Bo is, because there are very few guys who are a gunslinger like Bo is. And I hate to, I hate to u- keep using that cliched term, but no, it's true though. That like cat goes deep. Yeah, like, and he has no fear. And I, the thing I love yeah. is when you look at the spray chart, the targets of Bo Levi Mitchell. There's no pattern. Like you, there's so many guys in the CFL where if I look at it and you don't tell me which quarterback it is just because yeah. I study this stuff like you do, I can look at it and say, that, oh, that's probably Trevor or, you know, oh, that's Strevler. Look, there's a billion checkdowns. Uh, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's things like this that you realize, you know, I remember Brandon Bridge had one of the funniest target charts I've ever seen because uh, when I watch Bridge play is like, yeah, he can get through progressions. This is not as though he doesn't know what he's doing on the field, but whenever he would see somebody to his throwing arm side, to his right side, his natural intuition was get the ball out as quickly as possible under pressure, right? Because he's constantly backpedaling and stiff arming people with his reach. And he would just yeah. find somebody in front of him and try to rip it, whether it was Powell on a check down or somebody to the flats or Caleb Hawley or Roosevelt or whatever. And when I looked at his heat map, the under 10 yards to the far right outside of the numbers to the sideline for Brandon Bridge yeah. was like, 13% of his passes under 10 yards to the far right. And that's unheard of. Like that's, yeah. that's check down zone under five, maybe under 10 yards type stuff. And he was doing that to the far right side. I'm going, well, Brandon bridge very obviously has a tendency here. Like this is what I'm seeing from being able to track the throws, but with Bo, there's none of that. So when you say gunslinger, it's like, that's the true meaning of it is that you don't know where he's going to go with the ball, which is actually funny because to take this full circle there's been times where i've been watching these old great cups and it's so predictable right it's everything's between the hashes or everything's safe and but then peter lisk in that game for calgary that he throws for 400 yards in 1968 there's no pattern it's the whole damn field it's every edge it's every seam shot it's 
the the passing game advanced so quickly in the 60s to the point where you started to see the future of what a Bo Levi Mitchell could become. But just to, to throw in here some Nick Arbuckle numbers as well for you, led the league in completion percentage, 73.1 in 2019. Accuracy grade by my measures, he was first, 70.7 is what I gave him. Touchdown to interception ratio was fourth best in the CFL at 2.2. And then the other one that I had for you here, just comparing Bo uh, right up against uh, Nick Arbuckle was first down passing play production grade. Bo was slightly better, but after that, Arbuckle, because of his non-gunslinger ways, second down pass play production Mm -hmm. grade, he was better than Bo. Uh, touchdown to interception ratio, significantly better than Bo because, again, he took care of the ball a little bit more. Uh, and yards per pass attempt, he actually completed more deep passes as he was in for those games after Bo had been dinged, even though Bo was slinging it all over the place. Uh, there were some moments where they stretched the field and probably made a very uh, you know, a self-aware effort to try and stretch the field a little bit more once they started to kind of develop and get a sense for each other. Yeah, I just, I'm just, you prompted me to, to run through my own numbers. And yeah, everything I, I have with Nick is just didn't put the ball in harm's way as much as Bo tried yeah. to. I think Bo really had some, had some arm problems that, that plagued him in 2019. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, spray charts and plotting exactly where a guy throws the ball on the X and Y axis. From the 2017 Grey Cup, I, I did a thing with Ricky Ray and Bo Levi Mitchell. And I printed out that chart. And I, and I looked at them and I showed them to the guys and, and Bo does like, this is a single high safety league and Bo does not care. No, he is full willing to go. He, he'll play it between the hashes. He will go deep down the middle. He doesn't care because he thinks he's going to get it there. And it's fantastic. He literally, I just had to check. He had the most passes thrown between the hash marks in 2019, despite the fact he only threw 443 passes. Yeah. So no. he is, he is just, oh yeah, oh that's a single high. Oh, that's Mike Adam. Okay, fine, boom. I'm I'm going there because I believe I'm going to get it there, and my receivers are are good enough. That's, yeah. I I wonder what's left on that front for Calgary in the 2021 season. Uh, Bo, if Bo's fine, those that receiving core is taking a bit of a beating from free agency. And yeah, Calgary they always replenish, la la la. But at some point, you're not going to be able to replenish anymore. The so in- that's interesting thing interesting. for. For me, DT, about him just going after that single high look and being able to make throws is that he told me when we were chatting earlier this week uh, that he, one of his most comfortable throws is that seam shot versus cover one, cover three. So oh, you, yeah. get, you get anybody in the middle of the field and you get linebackers flying out or even playing man and running underneath stuff. And he said, I, I love being able to take it and just flick it right over somebody's head, right on a line, just outside the hash marks. And how many times have we seen the big bodies of Eric Rogers and Breskison and all the rest running down the chute and he just puts it on a rope and it gets there right in time and they walk into the end zone. So, and if you look at the target yep. charts too, ironically, I guess for the 2016 great cup that he loses to Henry Burris, the interceptions, I believe were right down the middle of the field. One of them was a miscommunication, but uh, I remember mm. again, being at that game in person back in 2016 and, and he was attacking down the middle of the field fearlessly, and it kind of bit him in the ass in that game. But at the same time, that's the nature of Bo Levi Mitchell is that it's going to bite him in the backside a couple of times. And if for every two that he gets wrong, he's going to get eight right, and those eight right are going to be the reason you win the game. So uh, he's not I, he's not afraid to keep pushing the boundaries of that. But again, as his game yeah. ages, 
I think it'll be fascinating to see how much he's willing to take those type of shots and how much he does push the ball and how much he stays a gunslinger. And does any of that change or evolve over time? Uh, because I don't think that it will, but typically you end up seeing that if your name's not Tom Brady, because uh, he just doesn't age whatsoever. Yeah. And for, from Bo's perspective, there's, there's a little bit of luck that plays into stuff like that. When you take those shots, right. Bo was the, the league leader in 2019, 2018, pardon me, in interceptions, he had dropped by defenders. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's literally nine passes that he got away with what, what he threw it, hit a defender in the chest and you go, that's, Oh boy. And you get, you get a little lucky those, right. About half of his interceptable passes got picked off in 2018 that number became 75% in 2019. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's five balls you didn't get away with. Right. And those, I mean, one interception is bad enough. Now here's five more, right. You're going to, you gotta, I, I love, I love Bo. I love watching him do his thing. You just gotta be a little more as cautious as he is when he knows he can't, you know, that he's been flushed out of the pocket and he just wants to go second and 10, forget it. Let's move on that level of caution needs to as he gets a little older creep a little more into his game i think into his passing game yeah and that's um that's something that i think he's probably gonna you know work on and evolve to it's i wonder how much having dickinson in in his in, literally in his head um during games because yeah. if you've ever watched the stampeders game you can hear dave dickinson talking to Bo right up until the snap uh but the the idea of being able to have a veteran cfl quarterback who aged outside of injuries relatively gracefully uh, having him right there with you, helping your decision-making down the road, as long as he's in Calgary and as long as Dave's there in Calgary, which I don't think either of them are going anywhere anytime soon, then yeah, that's that's going to be a smooth process, I think, down the line. Yeah. But um, I do want to bring I, up here. Yeah, go ahead there. I was going to say, I think that Dickinson thing, talking into his ear, uh, into Bo's ear, right to the, to the, essentially the snap, it really needs to be like an SNL skit. If Bo ever is big <laughs> enough for SNL. And he's just sitting on the side. Do you ever notice that when you eat corn on the cob, Bo, it's in your teeth? And Bo's like, 50. he's the mic, he's the mic. Hey, no. And it gives the wave. And really, corn on the cob is a terrific food. It'd be, it'd be great. Uh, there, have, there have been times before where I've been watching Calgary games and, you know, Bo does the whirly bird and puts everybody in motion, fixes his offhand glove. And as he's doing yeah. it, he, as he's doing that, you can just hear – uh, in his head, okay, two to one of the boundary. Here we go. You, like you can, you can actually hear Dave Dickinson just like faintly because the field is so well mic'd up. The parabolic mics on the sideline, guys holding it and pointing it in towards. And you, can, there's times where you can actually make out the loud buzz. But it's funny because, again, not to make this about me, but I've worn a Calgary Stampeders helmet with that speaker system in it. And holy, that thing is loud. So I'm not surprised that even with fans in the stands, you can hear it. But man, I'm telling you, if we start any games with like moderate number of fans in the stands, you know how much you're going to be able to hear from the quarterback oh. headset. If we still have those parabolic mics and there's not the ambient noise of the stadium, you're going to pick up yeah. on so much. Like it's basically a live mic game at that point. Yeah, it'll be great. So two things I learned today. Frank Claire, terrible coach. Two, Marshall does a great Dave Dickinson impression. That's what <laughs> that was outstanding. That's what Bo said as well when I uh, I did it for I did not anticipate Dickinson impersonation coming up twice in the same week here on CFP. Uh, and I hope that he never finds oh, out because blessed. I have great respect for Dave Dickinson. I would prefer not to have but the thing is if you do a Dave Dickinson impersonation, it, it would be easy to say that you do a Craig Dickinson impersonation, but I don't believe that's true. 
Uh, I think that they are different enough that I don't think yeah. you can copy the two because I think Dave has a little bit more drawl to his voice. Okay. So I think Dave Dickinson's a bit more elbow. You never know. You'll see. Uh, whereas Craig Dickinson, I think is a little bit more gravelly and, you know, for media sessions, just, yeah, we trust Cody, you know, Cody's going to be good for us. And uh, yeah. And, Craig, and Craig's got a little more life when he speaks than Dave. Dave is, Dave's, Dave is 27% more chill. Than Craig's got. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a really good point. You know, I, I think Cody is doing a tremendous job. Out there. He's got a little, little trouble, but he's got a little more energy. I like, yeah, I like that comparison. I'm with you. Uh, let's dive into some writer stuff here because we did tease this on the sports cage. If anybody was following along there and wanted to get into it, I just sent out the graphic I, once in a while. I just kind of pickpocket something that I've created in the past and send it out on our CFP social media, Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, let people discuss them themselves. Just throw a little grenade in the middle of CFL Twitter and see what people do with it. And uh, the one that I threw out there today was the 2019 Edmonton offense of Jason Moss and the 2019 Saskatchewan uh, offense of Stephen McAdoo. And mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of compare and contrast and see, and this was an article that I wrote way back in, I don't even know, it would have been very early spring 2020, I think, where I was kind of projecting where this stuff was going to be going. But um, the reason that I threw this out there was that I was just kind of tinkering around with the idea of how much it's going to change. Because we know, DT, that it's going to change. Like, the offense is going to evolve. Gerardo's going to take another step. And we're going to find out what this thing really looks like. But if you look at what Edmonton was different than with Saskatchewan in 2019, I mean, the second down pass production for Edmonton, if Saskatchewan gets any of that, I mean, they're going to be so much more dangerous. Second down completion percentage higher for Edmonton. Uh, Second down yards in air, I thought was interesting. Saskatchewan was higher. So it's almost like Fajardo took more risks, but Trevor taking low risks paid off more for them with yards after the catch as well. But a more aggressive pass offense on second down for Edmonton, that's going to come with Moss. Time of possession, better with Edmonton. Uh, and percentage of runs that were 10 or more yards also better with Edmonton. I mean, there's a lot of green on this, though. Saskatchewan was really good, first down heavy, second down Ooh, run. Yeah. Uh, it was it was really, really, really productive. It's just that I, I think you're going to see a meeting in the middle here. I don't think this is going to be a carbon copy for Saskatchewan's offense like it was with the 2019 uh, Edmonton roster. Yeah, the one thing we noticed from from 19, and it was Craig Dickinson said repeatedly, we want to be a power running offense. And they ran the ball well on first down, as your numbers show. They were the most effective team passing the ball on first down. Dickinson, I asked him, well, what's your definition of success? And he said, well, five yards on first down. Bleep, bloop, bloop. They were by far the most effective team passing the ball on first down. And it was significantly more than their effectiveness running the ball on first down it will not be a surprise to folks who listen. I I suspect that teams are generally more effective passing the ball on first down than running the ball on first down. Winnipeg was the only team that had it slightly in favor uh, of running. So I I, I would love to see that from Moss a little more. Uh, The the thing is, I'm curious to see, he kind of let uh, Mike Riley be Mike Riley, and then he let Trevor Harris be Trevor Harris in my mind. Mike's going downfield. Trevor is, is short, quick passing game. And, and he was able to uh, accommodate both of those. I was trying to pull up play action passing rates because I feel there, there are things that I feel like I see from, from Jason Moss offenses uh, and their play action 
and there's a lot of pre-snap motion. And I well, I here's that. well while you're pulling that up, I want to just ask you this question because I I have never really thought of it like this, but you make such a great point, DT, that you let Mike Riley be Mike Riley because Mike Riley, when he's doing what he's best at, is the most explosive arm in the Canadian Football League, right there with Bo. But I think Mike is the guy when he has. <laughs> I mean, we saw what happened with Duke. Um, and oh, when you, when man. you, when you've got Zilstra and all the rest, like it's just when he has the right pieces, he's as good as anybody going deep. Trevor Harris, when he has the right pieces, consequently different style, he's as good as anybody in the Canadian football. He just does it differently. What is Cody Fajardo? Like if he's, cause I don't anticipate Jason Moss just saying, I'm going to let Cody Fajardo be Cody Fajardo. And I'm, I'm not going to ask him to tweak anything. Cause I think you're right with Riley and with Trevor, yeah. there was a lot of that where it's, you guys are formed products. Let's just go out there and win games and be productive. If he came in and he said, I'm going to let Cody be Cody, what is Cody? What will that look like to you? Well, so Cody, Cody, first of all, what a lot of guys don't, don't present in the CFL is a real weapon in both the, in a design run game and the scramble game as well. That's, that absolutely has to be a part of it. Fajardo was the top-rated deep ball passer in the league in 2020, uh, probably 2019. That, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, because that doesn't, necessarily translate year to year right the strevolution was the top rated deep ball passer in 2018 and i don't think i can't not really... smile every single damn week when you say strevolution on this show it just makes me smile and laugh every time so thank you i love i love it i love uh <laughs> I, I love watching strevler go so much uh so i mean cody's a, cody's a smart guy cody's cody's a i'm trying to think of how i would describe him his his accuracy is probably about the league average as it pertains when you adjust it for depth of target and stuff like that. He got a little extra in uh, completion percentage above expectation in 2019, which one indicates to some degree luck to two, some degree indicates uh, great job by your receivers as well. So Fajardo's probably about a league average quarterback with a, with a really nice arm, uh, a great attitude toward the whole thing and man, a weapon in the run game. Like, yeah. Uh, Strebler as a runner might have been the most effective runner in the league, regardless of position, period, end of sentence. Uh, so just let's take Strebler and just push him to the side. Yeah. Uh, Fajardo Masoli might be the, the guys now for 2021 that are weapons in the run game. And I don't, I'd have to dig up what M Mike Riley was under under uh jason moss as far as design runs versus scrambles but uh, fajardo i mean can go deep does uh, throws a really nice ball and is smart and learns from his, his troubles right he got just he will say that week four game against calgary they just killed me they just killed me yeah comes back and the game in calgary gosh that would have been later in the season say week 16 i'd have to go back and check so Those the numbers the, the numbers that I've got here on Fajardo for uh, scrambling, because I put together an article in 2019 where I was projecting the 2020 quarterback run game. Like I was trying to use the numbers from oh, 2019 nice. and be like, hey, here's what this is going to be. So this actually fits with what we're doing. But it's nice when you write an article that just you stumble into. You remember, hey, didn't I do that a year and a half ago before the damn pandemic yeah. hit? Uh, but yeah, Fajardo averaged uh, just over eight yards per scramble on called pass plays on first down. So first yeah, down called pass plays, and that was third best in the CFL behind only Dominique Davis and McLeod Bethel Thompson, who were both at, <laughs> not, which I don't know why that is, but uh, I guess everybody was just bailing out playing zone and then McLeod was taken off. But 
Um, yeah, the team must have had one big one in there. <laughs> yeah, sixteen uh, for one forty-five is a real—that's a real solid average. Yeah, uh, but it was ahead of James Franklin, Vernon Adams Jr., Jeremiah Masoli, who were in fourth, fifth, and sixth when it came to first down. Now, in terms of how often he scrambled, <laughs> this is the funny thing: uh, Fajardo was the fifth highest scramble rate on first down called pass plays. At number five, it was Fajardo. Number four was William Arndt, which that's just a bad offensive line in Ottawa and no receivers getting open. Uh, yeah, Strevler, Strevler here, but this again is on called pass plays. This is not called run. So this is just Strevler still somehow <laughs> finding a way to take off and run, even though they're calling all the runs for him. Yeah. Uh, Dakota Prukop was at number two in terms of how often he would take off and scramble on first down. Uh, and yeah, same thing that you say, like in McLeod Bethel Thompson also running is like, okay, yeah, small sample size, but also just Toronto quarterbacks running around for their lives. Uh, yeah. And that was at like eight and a half percent. And then Matthew Schiltz from Montreal, 14% of the time he would take off and run on first down. <laughs> so oh. he was scrambling around when he was in there, but to your point about second down, and this is where I think it really shows out how dangerous Fajardo can be in this running game with Jason Moss is that in the system that he was in, yes, run heavy on first down, pound the rock, whatever you want to call it. And he would try to uh, manipulate people with his arm on second down. But keep in mind, it's his first full year as a starter, right? Because Zach was down yeah. early. He gets the job. He runs with it week two onwards. But he was just figuring out when to use the legs. He was really effective, but it didn't feel like it was a natural decision, like a, a swift I know exactly what I'm doing. I know when to take off. I can see through the defense. I can predict when I need to take off, where I need to escape to. And he was still really effective. So that same chart of how often you take off and run on called passing plays on second down versus how many yards you are gaining on second down scrambles. Fajardo mm -hmm. was the second most likely player in the CFL to take off and run on called pass plays on second down behind only Dakota Prukop. And Prukop was up at like 19% because he just couldn't find any open receivers. So Fajardo really, of all the normal quarterbacks that got any reps, he was the guy who was willing to take off and run. Now, how willing is, is Moss to see that on film? Because that's not just a number. That's something that they will obviously notice. And they'll say, okay, this is a strength. This is something we can build around him. How much do they call runs on second down or do they let Cody organically figure it out as he did in 2019 when he was just doing it on the fly? Yeah, that, that will be the thing, right? He had the second most designed runs behind, obviously, the Strevolution uh, yeah. and eight designed run touchdowns, including, gosh, the winner against Hamilton in week eight. Like Cody makes big plays yeah. and like how many times, gosh, what was it? Second and 20. And he ran for 21 yards. There were plays like that. And you go, you, you can't look at this and go, no, no, we're, let's push that aside. You know what? If you get near the line of scrimmage, you just bow Mitchell that and you just throw it into the dirt. Yeah. No, come on. You'd be, you'd be nuts to do that. Right. And I, I just, when I see, when I think of Moss offenses, I think of, uh, and just watching them over the years and the different players he's had over the years, you go, this seems like a guy who is, who is flexible with what's my, what's my quarterback good at. All right. I'm going to work with that. And then the, the stuff that gets talked about, uh, and I can't exactly prove it in the CFL, but the stuff that gets talked about in the NFL is just free, free yards and free points, things like play action and things like uh, snap motion where, Oh, we're four by one. Now we're one by four. Now your defense is going to have to figure this out. I'm going to find a mismatch in some spot here. 
it, I feel like Moss is the guy who takes advantage of that stuff more than, than anybody else. So if there's more play action, play action works on every down. Play action works every time. Play action worked the, tw- the two or three times the Riders ran it on the first play of the game. Like you don't got to establish <laughs> nothing for play action to work because it linebackers react to play action almost regardless. If it's a 50 point game late, it's not going to work. Yeah. So uh, Moss to me is a guy who, who sees that takes advantage of that. And I mean, if, if he and, if he and Fajardo are on the same page, Oh, it, it could be really, really nice, really yeah. nice for Saskatchewan fans. Yeah, it's, again, I think the best case scenario if we're building Frankenstein's monster here is if you could get Trevor Harris's short game with a sprinkling of Bo Levi Mitchell gunslinger and and a highly efficient QB called run game. Like, to me, that is the the best version of Cody Fajardo going into 21 here is – you get yeah. some of the deep shots, not all in second down. You can't become predictable where it's throw the ball four yards on first down and throw it 54 yards on second. But if they can find some sort of a balance and unpredictability of when they're going to take their shots, which Moss has done successfully, right? Like if he can sprinkle in a little bit of that Mike Riley, but also if you can get the hyper-efficient crossing routes, all those mesh routes, concepts, little checkdowns, flat routes, play action like you're saying, and just – Dink and Duncan here and there and and get you know seven receivers involved in the game at various points. If you can do that, mix that with the Mike Riley stuff, but also let Cody access that athleticism. Like that's the key that's yeah. going to open everything for Saskatchewan's offense. Just looking up uh Fajardo play action last year, passer rating of 109. Fajardo non-play action, passer rating 102. Not a huge, huge difference. Where would that he threw interceptions twice as often from not play action, just just taking the free stuff, just yeah. taking the free stuff. And sure, um, play action passes do tend to be shorter the way we categorize them because it includes things like run pass options, which maybe is not perfect, but uh, just just take it. And honestly, I think I think a lot of football fans, especially Ryder fans, would be disappointed if Fajardo didn't what didn't even improve on what was in eye-popping 2019 season and there's nothing in in the numbers uh from the tape that makes me go okay that's going to be a problem there's other quarterbacks who popped in 2019 where i went okay that is going to be a problem that is going to regress and you're in trouble in 2021 but i don't see anything of that from fajardo and then you know the guy you just you're when you interview him a bunch of times, you're like, I just want to hug this guy. He's fantastic. Yeah, I know. This guy's, he's, a, this guy's a godsend like, he's for football fans. Very easy to be able to uh, to agree with. He's a likable dude. But I guess the last yeah. thing that I'll ask you about this on, which is not X's nose or system related and all the rest. And by the way, I'll post all this uh, quarterback run stuff that I was just jabbered about on our social when I post the podcast episode. So if you're listening to this and you want to check out our Twitter, Instagram, go there and I'll post all this stuff up for you. So you can actually look at it and see where he kind of measures out on these things. But, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm just wondering how unfair it is to expect a leap from Cody when he had an above expected year in 2019 and we're coming out of a pandemic. Cause I don't, I think expectations is the enemy of, of, uh, you know, evolution production of being able to improve uh, in, in the longstanding of your career. And when you place expectations on things and you don't reach them, then all of a sudden you're a disappointment. Well, I don't think that's fair. And I'm not saying that I don't expect anything of Cody. He expects a lot of himself. But 
what is a fair expectation to put on him? Because it's hard to tangibly say, well, your passer rating needs to be a, a 110.2 to get better off play action, or you need to be a higher completion percentage than you were uh, last year on passes of 15 yards or more. I think there's a lot of minute things that go into this, but in the all-encompassing view, what do Saskatchewan fans expect of him? Because it feels like they expect the world because they love the oh. guy and they want the best for him. And they just, they just want him to do everything perfectly. And it's like, I just worry that if he doesn't do everything perfectly and he has holes in his game, which he should, because he's not a fully formed product yet, yeah. that, that people are going to jump on him and say, ah, we were sold a bad bill of goods again. We waited two years to hit this. And all of a sudden this is what Fajardo actually is. And it's like, yeah, but why did you set the expectation? for? How about you just let him play and you see where he goes with it? I don't know what the expectation should be. I think the expectation would probably be, well, Cody starts all, pretend he starts all 18, well, all 18 games. So an 18 game pace would be throws for 4,500 and then runs for another 750, something mm. like that. Like that, because you use him enough in the design run game and then he's enough of a weapon in scramble plays. I think those are probably the expectations. Is, is it fair? Well, what is? We're, we're not fair. <laughs> we, we, want, we got the Sunday. We want the cherry on top. Oh, but it's ice cream. It's great. Yeah, but it's better if I have the cherry on top, right? It's, <laughs> we're always going to want more. And we always expect, we always expect guys to progress, uh, you know, in a, in a constant linear fashion, right? Oh, you were, you were an 82 in year number one, where you're going to be an 84, and then an 86, and then maybe you're a 90. When they're... Uh, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but there's a quarterback who was a people think was like an 85 in 19, in 2019, who I think is going to be a 60 in, in 2021, just because of things that, that he showed on the field. And if he didn't fix them, yikes. The, yeah. the one point with uh, having a year off, uh, I, when people say that, I just kind of think, well, everybody had a year off and it's going to be a short camp for presumably a short camp for defensive players offenses are going to flourish mm. in the early part of the uh, the season because they know where they're going and defenders are defenders who may not be 100 percent at their sharpest are going to have to react and they're like oh boy there's gonna Thanks. be some there's gonna be some 50 45 shootouts early on in the season and i hope i get to call a couple of them yeah for sure it's interesting that you say that because i hadn't really considered who has the advantage on a limited preseason minimal training camp situation because it gotta be offense you would think it would be offense it's almost like when people talk about snow games and they're like oh this is awful for the quarterbacks i'm like the receivers know where they're going the dbs don't like the snow games are always better for the offense and that's what makes snow games so fun to me uh aside from enjoying the actual kind of context of how they look on television all the rest are in person but uh yeah the offense knows where they're going but rhythm timing ball out of your hand communication at the line of scrimmage there's a lot of times I feel like where a defense can run out there and go, Hey, base cover three, you know, uh, saw blitz. And you know, that's oversimplifying things, but they can call a base coverage and they can play now. Uh, depending on the groups that you have coming in. I mean, Edmonton's going to probably be okay. Cause Elizondo is going to get people up to speed real quick. If he hasn't already on zoom calls and all the rest. Uh, but I wonder like an Arbuckle situation in Toronto with Dinwiddie, they know what they're doing. Eric Rogers knows what they're doing. Yeah. Does Dijon Brissett? Like, is he fully uploaded on everything that they're going to try to accomplish? And then it's one thing to know it when you're in a Zoom call. It's another thing to get on the field and a week later be playing a game. Yeah. The, uh, the one thing that, that I lead to is it just takes one mistake from defense to, bam, Kyron Moore, 98 yards, can two, two Argos smash into each other deep in the backfield. Whereas if Deshaun Brissett runs the wrong route, 
our our buckle will go okay well i'm coming inside now or i'm going to throw it into the turf it's more there's more disaster potential if one defensive player makes a mistake versus one receiver for example Yes, that is uh, that is fair. As always, we don't get to our final point here on the podcast because uh, we run out of time because DT and I have lives outside of this podcast, believe it or not. He's been talking for 18 hours straight about CFL football between radio oh, and podcast. So, so uh, good though, right? Oh. Yes, we will, uh, we will save it. But let's give a quick shout out to Chris O'Leary in the article. If people want to check it out, cfl.ca. Chris wrote uh, just some lingering thoughts that he had going into training camp here. We were going to pick our favorite each coming out of this. Uh, but what kind of caught your eye as we uh, head towards the exits here on the breakdown? He, he referenced, Chris referenced it. Chris, tremendous writer at CFL.ca. Yeah. You should absolutely read everything he does. Winnipeg is going with Maguire as it's number two still. <laughs> I had to check my depth chart to make sure. Are, is this the most suicidal play we've seen? They love in, him. In the CFL? They, they love Dominic Davis too. Yeah. I remember hearing the story. Oh, they, they think Davis is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Davis threw four picks in a win, beat Saskatchewan, and then they went three and 15. Uh, yikes. Um, I, I'm on Kolaros Island. I love Zach Kolaros. I love, since he was, should have been MOP of the league in 15. Love him. Yeah. You can't, you can't go in with the worst backup quarterback situation in the CFL. If, if you are Winnipeg and I don't, I don't care how good you think Andrew Harris is. You, you can't do it. If, if Calgary can have Dakota Prukop and BC can have Will Arndt, you got to find, you got to find something and somebody to be your backup there. Cause I, 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 I closed down the file. I don't know how many passes Sean McGuire's thrown, but six, like is it six, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a lot. Uh, my, my favorite one that Chris decided to pick here was Toronto. And he uh, says this in the article, the best training camp battle might take place in Hamilton, but an hour or two or three, depending on how the traffic gods feel up to QEW, the Toronto Argonauts will have the most interesting overall camp in the league. We know how they spent their winter signing big name free agents on top of big name free agents, loading their roster up with talent on both sides of the border. GM Pinball Clemens and VP of player personnel, John Murphy, didn't just swing for the fences through this long offseason. They bulldozed over them and planted Argos flags where the fences once sat. Canadian talent, Jawan Briskason, Jamal Campbell, Fabian Foote, Cameron Judge, Enoch Mwamba, Levi Noel, just to name a few. American talent, how about Nick Arbuckle, Devaris Daniels, Alden Darby, Charleston Hughes, Cordero Law, Shaq Richardson, Eric Rogers, John White, Odell Willis, Bear Woods, and Chandler Worthy. Intriguing new CFL faces. How about Cousins Kelly and Martavius Bryant, Coney Ely, Ronald Ollie? You know what? Let's just link to the roster. And then he put in a hyperlink in the article to take you to the roster. So, I mean, yeah, that's the, the Argos have the potential to be a circus. They really do. And uh, I think that's what you are getting at there. If you are Chris O'Leary is everybody's excited to see what it ends up looking like. Nobody has any idea what the starting point's going to look like. And the thing that I personally love about this DT is we already know the preseason's useless. The real players don't use the preseason very much. They don't get much action in training camp. And we still end up with two weeks of football that looks like preseason football. This year, man, that's going to be tenfold. And the idea that Toronto's going in with this science experiment and they don't get any time to let it actually figure itself out or sort out depth charts. They're just going to be, if we get like a one or two week training camp with no preseason, they are just going to be throwing people out on the football field and being like, Hope you guys are good. And then we just, we get to see what happens. So uh, that'll be a fun, I mean, I don't want to see the season pushed back to Labor Day as a start time, 
But yeah. can you, again, to the point of the idea that Toronto starts against Calgary in a normal uh, setup here where we uh, start in August, if we start on Labor Day and it's the Ticats with the vast majority of their starters, especially on offense, back up against whatever that defense is going to look like for Toronto, yeah. and it's a Labor Day game and it's in Hamilton and there's some capacity that's allowed in the stands, uh, again, that's just going to be wild to see. There's so many different versions of how you can start the year and you just go, I have no idea what that's going to look like, but I can't wait to find out. Yeah. Cam Judge and Enoch Mwamba. Could be great. Could be, <laughs> could be, uh, could take a second to get together. It's going to be, uh, Toronto has made the last two off seasons very interesting and I can't wait to see it on the field. Yes, absolutely. Uh, always fun to hang out, my man. Thank you for this. Appreciate it. Make sure you're checking out DT on SC. That is his Twitter handle, of course, and check him out on the sports cage out there on 620 CKRM. What do you got coming up for the rest of the week? Oh, gosh. So we're talking a bunch about hockey, as you would uh, yes. expect. Of course, Farhan Lalji is with us every Wednesday, CFL Insider. And very excited for Wednesday's guest, uh, the O-Dog, Jeff O'Neill. I never... <laughs> I never hit him up to be on the show before. I said, hey, we barely talk about the Leafs. Would you come and talk about the Leafs and glorious victories in 200-meter races? And he's like, sure. So yeah. I'm excited to talk to the O-Dog. I haven't, uh, haven't talked to him too much since I, since I left a couple of years ago. Awesome. I, uh, the one time I talked to him on radio here in Hamilton, I just did it as a favor to one of my friends because uh, one of my good friends, Amos Conley, used to be the McMaster men's basketball head coach. Uh, he was coaching there when I was playing football and afterwards he said, you know, I'd, I'd like to come hang out with you guys in the show. I'm like, yeah, you're an interesting guy. You've got opinions. You watch all the sports. So he did, he came in and one day we were talking with Jack Armstrong and Amos was in the studio and he asked a question. He said, that was awesome, but I'd love to talk to O-Dog. And I, he just planted the seed. So for his birthday, one day we had Amos come in and, and co-host the show with myself and Kyle Mello. And we surprised him. We didn't even tell him on the guest list. We just started the segment. We said, let's welcome in the O-Dog. It's Jeff O'Neill from TSN 1050 Toronto's uh, Overdrive here. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Uh, Amos, you had a question you wanted to ask Jeff. We just threw it to him, dead fish and all. And he just, uh, 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 hey, Jeff, it's great to, hey, man, it's how, how are things going? Like he just tried to like yeah. saddle up to him at the bar and become his friend instead of actually asking him the question, which was so That's good amazing. on live radio. So, yeah, that'll be a fun one for you. Uh, I am sure. Let's uh, get a quick shout out here for our sponsors. As always, they make this podcast possible for us. It is, of course, Fox 40. Their close vicinity line is designed to help you return to play safely. 15% off all your whistle needs. Visit fox40shop.com and enter the code CFP15. And don't forget, here in May, we got how many days are there in May? I never know the answer to any of those 31. questions. 31. Okay. Uh, so we got, uh, as of today, with the podcast coming out, 12 days remaining in the month of May, that means 12 sleeps to be able to order yourself some Soda City beer free of shipping in Ontario if you order over 100 bucks. Uh, they've got a lot of great new stuff coming out, summer seasonal beers as well. You're going to want to check those out. So uh, thank you for listening. As always, at CF Perspective is where you can find us. It was a fun one today. we got a great all-Canadian show with Connor and Wade coming up Thursday. Myself and Kyle Mello round out the week on Friday, and then uh, we head into another footballless weekend for now. Thanks for listening. No, I want football. <laughs>